0: Let's pray together. Our God, we pray like a father who sets out a meal before their children so you have given us your word that by it we might have life. For man doesn't live by bread alone, but by the words that come from your mouth. So help us to receive this today. Today is the day of salvation where you who sits on the throne offer mercy and pardon that we might escape from judgment. As we pray that we would take hold of that pardon that's offered to us today, that we might not be judged. Hear us and open our eyes to your word and to Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. About six years ago, my wife and I, we got to take the trip of a lifetime, which is that we got to spend a week in Israel Uh, when we had first gotten married in our first year, we had sort of joked back and forth to us together that in our fifth year, we would go to Israel. And we had no money for that, no thought that that would actually happen, but through a set of circumstances, in our fifth year, we ended up going to Israel. Then we had joked that in our 10th year, we would go to India, and last year, we went to India. And so, since the Lord is listening, I'm just saying that in year 15, I'd really like to be in Tahiti, just so that you know, right? Right. Now, it was an incredible trip, needless to say, the things that we got to see, the places that we got to go, the sights and the sounds and all of it, and yet, without a doubt, hands down, no question, my single favorite moment of the trip was visiting what's called the Western Wall. We know it here as the Wailing Wall. It's that site you can imagine back in social studies or you've seen it on TV where all these thousands of faithful pilgrims go and they wail and pray passionately at that wall. And I have to tell you, for me, it was an incredible experience to stand there. I I vividly remember reaching out my hand and touching the western wall. And as I did, I just remember that there was this flood of thoughts in my mind, all the stories from the Bible that I had either read or heard as I stood there. With my hand to the western wall, to the wailing wall, I I remembered thinking, this just feet beyond where my hand was, was the temple that Solomon, the son of David, had built. It was the spot of ground on the earth that Yahweh God had visited like no other place on the planet. I mean, just feet beyond where my hand was touching... God had come when the temple was dedicated in such glory that the Bible says nobody could enter because it filled the place in such, uh, such brilliance, such light that nobody could be there. I mean, just feet beyond where my hand was standing was what's called the Holy of Holies, the spot of ground on the earth where Yahweh and his presence dwelt like it didn't anywhere else on the earth. Meaning if if God is everywhere, but if he had a physical address, if you could mail him something, it would be to that spot, right beyond where my hand was touching. Or just the thought that my feet right then were standing on the same ground that perhaps Jesus himself had walked by. That God incarnate had come down to the earth, and he, when he walked to the temple, walked the very ground on which I was standing there. I mean, you, you could imagine as a Christian the flood of thoughts that were going on in my mind. And yet, I could tell you this. Out of all those different stories and all those different thoughts as moving as that experience was there was one thought in my mind that dominated all the other thoughts. One thought that captured more than anything else and that was standing there with my hand to the wall I don't need to be here. Right? I don't need to be here. In fact, the thought that I had was that I was no more closer to God there and then, than I am right now standing at 525 Welsh Road in Northeast Philadelphia. That the ground under my feet right now is no less sacred than the ground under my feet as I was standing inches from where Jesus walked, from where God himself dwelt. I I was standing there and I can tell you I remember coming back and I felt nothing in my heart that felt like I had to encourage you all to make a pilgrimage there in fact if you want to go as tourists go and yet when I came back I felt almost precisely the opposite that no one needs to go there that no one has to be there I was standing on the ground where the Holy of Holies was feet beyond me where Yahweh dwelt where Jesus walked and I was more than ever assured that the ground I'm standing on right now is just as sacred. Now, why is that? I think the passage we're looking at today tells us why that is. So if you've got a Bible, listen, open to it. It's the passage that Colleen read for us. It's Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 25. It's page 847. So turn there because that's where we'd be camped out. And when you get there, you'll see that, Unlike, for example, our Muslim friends who make a pilgrimage to Mecca, the holy city, or unlike our Jewish friends who make a pilgrimage to the Western Wall, a Christian is someone who goes somewhere else. Where we go is somewhere else, and this passage shows us where that is. When you get there, you'll see that our passage has three basic movements— Right? Three basic turns in the story. It's quite clear. It begins with this curious, odd, strange bit that makes us scratch our heads about Jesus cursing a fig tree. It goes from there to Jesus basically wrecking shop in the temple. And then after that's done, we come back to the fig tree. Right? That's the movements. And right there itself, in just that structure of how Mark lays this out, immediately we're clued into, wait, Mark is doing something here. And we know that because we've actually seen Mark do this before in his account of the gospel, right? We've seen him. In fact, if you remember, it's been some time, we called this Mark's Sandwiches. Do you remember? Mark would lay a piece of bread, and then he'd move on to something else, and then he'd come back to lay a piece of bread. That's what he did. He'd talk about something. Then he'd talk about something else, and then he'd go back to what he talked about. It'd, it'd sort of be like he, he gives you A, and then he moves on to B, and then he goes back to A. And whenever we've seen that, we're immediately clued into, wait, all three of these things are connected somehow, right? And, and just like any good sandwich, we also know the meat in the middle is the key right? Nobody just puts two pieces of bread together and eats that. It's the meat in the middle that holds the whole thing together. And so likewise, we know when we get to the middle, that's going to inform how we see everything around it. So here's the sandwich. It starts with the first layer, verses 12 through 14. It says this, on the following day, just so that we're caught up, following day from what? From where we were last week, if you remember when Jesus Enter Jerusalem triumphantly. If you remember verse 11, he got into the temple, he looked around, it was late, he went out to Bethany. Well, now it's the next morning. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now that's the first layer. If you're anything like me, you read this and you go, what is that about? Right? It seems, you know it can't be this because Jesus is God, but it seems like Jesus is just having one of those mornings, right? Like like maybe he's... uh, hangry, right? Because it says he, he couldn't eat breakfast. He's upset about something. What is this here? Because he sees a fig tree in leaf. He goes over to it. It doesn't find anything on it. And he says, may no one eat fruit from you ever again. So much so that by the time we get to the third section, verse 20, it says that the tree withered. So so you wonder, what is that? In fact, what makes this especially odd is this is the only miracle of destruction in the gospel accounts. Jesus doesn't do this. Jesus takes that which is withered and makes it whole. Jesus takes a man's withered hand in Mark and straightens it. He doesn't take trees and wither it. He takes that which is dead and makes it alive. So what is he doing here? What makes it all the more odd is what Mark tells us. Do you notice in verse 13? For it was not the season for figs. He goes up to a fig tree. He doesn't find anything on it. He curses it. Mark tells us it wasn't the season for figs. So how it sounds to us is Jesus walks up to an apple tree in December and is mad that there's no apples. And we'd almost want to go back. Wait, what did you expect? But there's more. You see, you'll notice Mark gives us a clue. He says, Mark says, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. Now, that doesn't mean anything to us because we're not, we're not horticulturists. We don't know anything about this stuff. But here's what I learned as I studied this week. As I read, I learned that in that part of the world, fig trees would produce these edible buds. So it'd be March, and you'd get the first buds that would come out. They wouldn't be ripe yet, but they'd be edible. And then after that, you'd get leaves. And then when it's around June, the fig trees ripen. And these buds become ripe fig trees. So, so that's the order. You get the le- You get the buds that can be eaten. Then you get the leaves. And then you get the ripe figs. So once there's leaves, it's an indication of what? That there should be fruit. Now, it's not the season for figs, so it's not going to be ripe figs. But there should be something on it. So here's the point. The tree has leaves, meaning it's supposed to have fruit. But Jesus goes to it and can't find anything on it. Essentially, the tree is a big, empty show. It's basically shouting out There's leaves here, a big leafy tree that should have lots of fruit on it. It's a big empty show, meaning outwardly from a distance, it's got all the signs of life. But once Jesus gets up close, he sees it for what it is, barren and fruitless and lifeless. And Jesus responds to that by pronouncing a curse, by pronouncing judgment. So much so that, as we said, when you get to verse 20, the bottom layer of the sandwich, you find this tree has withered away down to its roots. You see what Jesus has done? One preacher has said what he's essentially done is taken away the false advertising of the tree. Because it's shouting with its leaves that something is going on here. Life should be what you expect to find there. And Jesus now exposes it for what it is namely, lifeless and fruitless. And he is not going to allow the show to go on anymore. He's going to let you see it for what it really is. Take that in. He's not going to allow the big empty show anymore. He's going to let you see it for what it is. And just as that is sort of beginning to sink in our mind, he curses that which is fruitless. From a distance, it looks like it has signs of life. Up close, he finds that it's barren and empty and fruitless, and he is not going to let the show go on anymore. Just as that is sort of sinking in our mind, we get to the meat of the sandwich. We get to the middle section, and here's what happens next. Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem... And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So we move from one section to the other with our minds filled with this thought that Jesus has cursed the fruitless fig tree. And now he arrives at the temple. And just consider what we've read. I mean, you imagine what that scene would have been like. In your own mind's imagination, could you picture what Mark has just described? What would it have been like for the people who showed up to the temple that day like any other day? Like they had showed up yesterday, like they expect to show up tomorrow? What would it have been like that as they imagine business as usual, everything's going to go on, that all of a sudden everything is violently, forcefully interrupted by Jesus from Nazareth? That this Jesus of Nazareth has come, and what does he do? He begins to drive out those who are buying, drive out those who are selling. I mean, the other gospel accounts tell us he made a weapon for that. Then we read here in Mark that he takes these tables that have all these coins, this currency exchange, and he flips over the table. I mean, what would you imagine if the preacher stood and threw this pulpit to the side? started throwing over chairs in this spot. Not even Jerusalem, the holy temple, 525 Welsh Road. You throw over chairs, throw down mics. You imagine what has just happened. He's taking chairs on which those who sell pigeons are, and he's overturning them and throwing them into the the temple. It says he stops people from carrying anything from one place to the other. So you can imagine he's standing in the way of people saying, you are not going this way today. It's done. Now what on earth is that violent, forceful outburst about? This is not how you see Jesus. And to us, I want us to hear that when we see this, we might be tempted to think that Jesus is just having this sort of outburst. He can't take it anymore. He's already had a bad day. He's, remember, hungry from the morning. This this must not be a good day for Jesus. And yet I want you to hear this isn't some kind of spontaneous outburst. Now, in fact, as I've read and studied, I, I think many have noticed th- this wasn't spontaneous at all. You remember how verse 11 ended in the last, chap- last section. Jesus, after the triumphant entry, had gotten into the temple, and he did what? He looked around, meaning he, he surveyed everything. He inspected it all. He took it all in, and yet it was night. It was late. It wasn't the time to do something, so he left for Bethany and then came back the next morning. He he took it in. He saw what was happening there. He surveyed it. He inspected it. I think what Mark is telling us is that the same Jesus who went up close to the fig tree and inspected it and saw it to be fruitless had done the same the night before in the temple. He had gone in, he had looked around, he had taken it all in. He had seen that from a distance, this thing had all the signs of religious life. And yet he had seen it for what it really was. And like the fig tree, I think he saw it to be fruitless and lifeless and barren. And Jesus went home to Bethany and came back with not a spontaneous outburst, but a planned demonstration designed to hit the people at prime time. You see, till now, we said this last week, Jesus has been incognito. Don't tell anyone about me. The crowds are looking for me. I'm going to skip to the other town. Jesus doesn't want anyone to know, it seems. And now, the way he rides into the temple is so that everyone will notice. And what he does in the temple can't be missed by anyone. He makes sure that at the height of activity, he throws this demonstration so that everybody will hear it. And in verse 18, we hear, and especially the chief priests and the scribes hear about it. In fact, what they see and what they hear will be the thing for which Jesus probably gets most in trouble for. In fact, so much so that when he's going to be tried later that, in those days, One of the things they bring up at his trial is what he said and did in the temple. Jesus was going to get in trouble for this. In fact, I want you to say Jesus is going to get killed for this. And yet in love for his father and in love for us, here's what he does. Mark tells us he enters the temple. And as soon as he enters right there in the temple courts, You can imagine, in your mind, whatever you've seen on TV, whatever you can imagine, imagine a noisy Middle Eastern market, like a bazaar, right there in the temple courts. Could you picture people are buying and selling? Could you hear the noise of the crowds of people? Could you see these tables with currency being traded, foreign currency being exchanged so that you could have enough to pay the temple tax. Could you hear the coins clinking? Could you hear the animals braying? Could you hear the shoppers bargaining? Could you hear the shop owners calling out that they should come and buy from here? What's more, even what we're told by commentators and so on, is that this place had probably even become a shortcut to get across the city so that you don't have to go around. So, so you bought a rug and you need to get it from the market to your house. You're just going to take it right through the temple court. Why go around the whole thing when you can go right through the Middle Eastern market right there in the temple courts? That's what the thing had become. And what's more, the temple had four sections. The innermost part was the Holy of Holies. One man once a year could go in there and offer a sacrifice for the atonement of all the people. Beyond that, you had the place where the Jewish men could go. Beyond that, where the Jewish women could go. Beyond that, the outer courts is the court of the Gentiles. That's as far as a non-Jew could go, but there was a purpose for the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was for foreigners, outsiders, those who weren't the covenant people of God. Here was the spot designed in the temple by God that they should be able to come and encounter Yahweh that they should pray there, they should seek God there, they should encounter the God of Israel there. You imagine, God had designed space in his holy temple for unbelievers, for foreigners, for outsiders. In fact, the prophet Isaiah is what Jesus references when he's teaching in the midst of this demonstration. And hear what Isaiah said way back then. Isaiah 56, listen to what God had in mind for his holy temple. Isaiah 56 verse 6, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast to my covenant. What will God do with these foreigners, with these Gentiles? Verse 7, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer, Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. God's heart for the nations didn't begin in Jesus. Isaiah said, The temple by its very design and structure had in mind that God's people Israel would be such a light to the nations that people from the ends of the earth would stream towards Israel's God and they would come to the temple and they'd offer prayers and discover Yahweh and come into covenant and be his people. And that space is what was turned into a marketplace, was turned into a bazaar. It had become like the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange. I want you to imagine. Imagine being on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange after the bell has rung. Hear the traders clamoring back and forth in all their commercial pursuits and the exchange of all these goods, and imagine just adding animals to that, walking around on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and now imagine finding a quiet corner somewhere to pray. To connect with God, to meet who Israel's God was. The chief priests and the scribes had allowed the temple courts to become a marketplace. What's worse is you get the sense, not only was it a marketplace, but perhaps a corrupt one at that. Right when Jesus teaches in that moment. He quotes Isaiah, what we just read. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? And then he quotes Jeremiah 7 saying, but you have made it a den of robbers. So you wonder what kind of commercial interest, what kind of extortion, what kind of unfair practices was going on, what kind of exploitation was going on, what manner of men were sitting in these courts. What were their hearts? This sacred space meant for prayer had become a den of robbers. Here's the point. At the heart of Israel, you had Jerusalem. At the heart of Jerusalem, you had the temple. Jesus had come to the center, come to the heart, and what he found was no prayer, no light to the nations. What he found was fruitless and faithless. Do you see it? Jesus had come, and from a distance it had all the signs of life. You might say it was like a big leafy fig tree. It had all the signs of life, but once he got close, he saw it for what it was, a big empty show. And so he clears the temple. What's interesting, what many have noticed is, do you notice He doesn't clear the temple of the Gentiles. That's what you had hoped. The Messiah was going to come, and he was going to clear Israel of the Gentiles. The foreigners would go. They would go out of Israel, go out of Jerusalem, surely go out of the temple. And yet, rather than clearing the temple of Gentiles, the Messiah came and cleared the temple for the Gentiles. He had not come to push them out. He had come to bring them deeper in than they had ever been before. He had come to give access to even the Gentiles to the Holy of Holies. He had come for something totally different. And so what he does in that hour on that day is he essentially brings everything to a halt. He shuts it all down. And then the fig tree starts to make sense, doesn't it? Now you get the meat, and now it makes sense of the bread, and now you go, Jesus was giving you an object lesson, that the fig tree had become this perfect metaphor, even as the prophets had compared the people of Israel to fig trees and sometimes barren ones at that. That here is Jesus doing to the temple what he had done to the fig tree, pronouncing judgment, bringing it to an end. And here's the thing, said Marod, Within a few decades of when Jesus does this, Jerusalem will be ransacked and the temple will be destroyed, leveled to the ground, you might even say, withered down to its roots. Now, we may not appreciate what a big deal that was. It may go right over our heads to hear that the temple was destroyed, but if you were a part of the people of God living then and there, The temple was to your faith what your heart is to your body. You remove the heart from your body, so it was to remove the temple from the people of God. If you remove the temple, you go, where's our center? Where do we now go to meet with God? This is where God dwelt. Where do we encounter his presence? Where do we go to pray? Where will we offer our sacrifices? Where will the high priest go in to atone for our sins and the sins of the nation? Where will we have the high priest step in to intercede for us? How does any of this work anymore? What do you do when the heart's been removed? But here's what Jesus had come to do. Jesus, the Messiah, had come to give his people a heart transplant, to essentially change the center, to now take the heart of the temple out and replace it with himself. He was now the center of God's people. He was now the temple. He is now the fulfillment. He himself is the fulfillment of everything the temple was supposed to be. In fact, this is why Jesus talked the way he did and it didn't make sense at the time. He would say things like, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it up again. And everybody was offended to their core. This temple, Solomon's temple, took decades to build and you're going to build it up in three days. And it wasn't until later that the gospel writer said they didn't get it. He was talking about his own body. Why? He was the temple. He would be the one that would be withered down he would be the one on the tree withered down who would be raised up again in three days and now because Jesus is our temple everything the temple was he is where does God dwell Colossians 1:19, and it pleased God for the fullness of God to dwell in Christ the fullness of God dwells in Christ where do we now go to meet with God You go to Christ. What about the sacrifice we need? It's Christ. He was the one sacrifice. Hebrews says, You offered blood of bulls and goats forever, unending, but now Jesus was the sacrifice once and for all for all His people. What about the high priest? Where will the high priest go to intercede? Hebrews says, Jesus is our high priest. He ascended and sits at the right hand of God, living now to make intercession for His people. Do you imagine? The old covenant high priest would go in. He'd have the names of Israel on his heart and on his shoulders. He'd walk into the presence of God, carrying God's people before him. But now, we have a high priest who has ascended to the right hand of God. And could you imagine that the Bible says that our high priest intercedes for us? Do you know that on his heart, on his shoulders, Jesus carries you to the presence of his Father? Speaks on your behalf to God. You have a high priest who ever lives to make intercession for you. Here's the point. You want to meet with God? Go to Jesus. You want to worship? Go to Jesus. You want to encounter his presence? Go to Jesus. You want to know how the Gentiles and the nations will come to God? It's through Jesus. You want the sacrifice you need? It's in Jesus. Here's the point. Jesus is now the heart of his people. That's why I could stand at the western wall inches away from where Yahweh's presence was and know with every bit of assurance I don't need to be here because this is not my temple. Jesus is. The most sacred spot of ground on the earth is wherever you are when you come to Jesus. If you come to Jesus right now, this is holy ground. The ground under your feet is as holy as any other place on the planet if you'll come to Jesus. Because Christians, we don't make pilgrimages. Where we go is to a person now. A place has been replaced by a person. We go to him. We go through him. And we go to God. This is what Mark and the scriptures want us to see. Well, Mark ends... And here's how he ends. He's given us the bread and the meat. And now here's the final part of the sandwich. And he goes back and concludes in this section with going back to the fig tree. Look at verse 20 to 25. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Okay, Mark is ready to close this section. We're essentially ready to land the plane. Now, I need you to know that in, at Seven Mile Road, when our preachers, we have this sort of internal rule, which is when you land the plane, you land the plane. We always say when you come to the conclusion, don't take off again with a new idea. Right? You've been talking about something, say what you've said, but don't start up again with something else. It seems to me that Jesus would have heard that and said, that's dumb. I'm not going to do that, right? <laughs> Jesus would have said, you, you don't know anything about preaching. Because it seems to me that as we're getting ready to land the plane, how did this thing that started with the fig tree end up on this teaching about prayer and then forgiving one another? So you can imagine my challenge this week of trying to rope all this together, right? What, what, what is he doing here? So you'll be patient with me, but I, I think here's what's going on. That Peter's amazed that this tree has withered. And now, as we finish the sandwich, we're informed by all the rest, and and essentially, we're supposed to learn some kind of lesson from this fig tree. Here it was, with all the signs of life, but at closer inspection, it had no fruit, no faith. And Jesus turns, not just to Peter who asked him something, but to all of them, and says to them, have faith in God. That is, what was lacking in the temple, this big leafy show with no fruit and no faith, that's not to be you. Have faith and bear fruit. Learn from the tree that you might not be fruitless and judged as it was, as the temple was. So have faith in God, and then this genuine faith will express itself. It'll manifest in these little buds, one of which is prayer. The very thing that was lacking in the temple is what? The house of prayer had no prayer, but not you, right? You have faith in God. There, there there was no prayer, there was no faith, there was no fruit, but you, you learn from this tree. Have faith in God, and let that be expressed in prayer. Now, there's much more to say on this, Because part of the struggle of these verses in particular is it seems like Jesus is giving a blank check to his people. Do you hear it? You tell this mountain, go and throw yourself in the sea. As long as you believe hard enough, it will do it. And whatever you ask, if you believe with no doubt, you'll get it. So what does that mean? And as you can imagine, people have taken that and run to the ends of the earth. Right? We've, got, we've got names for these things. We call it name it, claim it, and, and prosperity preaching, and all the rest. At the very least, we ourselves should go, okay, we have to be constrained by the verses that come before and the many verses of the Bible that will come after to help us understand what Jesus is saying. As you can imagine, there's qualifications we have to make so that we understand what he's saying. Right? What, what does he mean by whatever you ask? I'll give you two seconds. I I read as much as I could on it. I I found this thing that this pastor named John Piper had written. He tried to explain that, look, when we use words, context dictates what those words mean, right? For for example, he, he used to say that he's tried to explain this to his seminary classroom. He'd go into his class and he'd say, looking around, is everybody here? And, of course, some unsuspecting student would raise his hand and say, yeah, everybody's here. And then real wise guy, real annoying and irritating, he'd say, well, where's Jimmy Carter, the president at the time? And everyone would get annoyed, and his point was to say, yeah, everybody could mean everybody, or it could be narrowed by the context you're talking about. He'd say, go on, he'd say, look, if you went to someone's house for dinner and said, what do you want for dinner? And they said, I'll have whatever you have. Nobody would put a, a shoe on your plate. No, because the whatever is constrained by a context. And so there's some verses that came before. There's a lot of verses of the Bible that'll come after that help us understand what is the whatever you ask for. For example, Jesus will teach things about prayer, encouraging us to pray like a father. And he'll say things like, look, if a child asks for bread, the father doesn't give him stone. If he asks for a fish, a father doesn't give him a serpent. The inverse of that is true also. What if you've got a kid who asks for a stone or asked for a serpent? Aren't you glad the father won't give him whatever he asked for? Can't you be glad to trust that you've got a good father in his good will who will answer whatever we ask for in good ways for us? But but here's what I want to say I don't want this passage to die the death of a thousand qualifications meaning I I don't want you to hear all that it doesn't mean so that you miss what it actually does mean. I, I don't want us to be barred from stepping into this passage, though we have to step into it carefully, from actually stepping into it, that God, Jesus, is inviting us to pray. And what kind of prayers? Big, bold, expectant, confident, full of faith prayers. The ESV study Bible says about this passage, it says, Jesus is telling us we can trust in God to remove whatever hinders us from bearing fruit for God. Learn from the fig tree. We want to be fruitful as individuals, as a church, and we can trust in God to remove whatever mountain of hindrance there is that stands in our way from bearing fruit for God. This passage is meant to inspire us, move us, to pray great, big, expectant prayers. So, I want to make that incredibly practical for you. This week, we'll gather in GCMs, many of us in smaller communities. Pastor Benu has sent out to your GCM leaders guides to help you think about praying together. As you do, I think it's fair to say that in the day we find ourselves in, there is a mountain of hindrance to us. As you watch the news, as you hear what's going on in the nation, there's a mountain of challenge and difficulty as we try to think about what it looks like to live as authentic Christians, as salt and light in the world, in such a way that brings glory to God in our day, in our culture, in our world, in this spot of the planet called America. And so what should we think through at that moment? I mean, you you can imagine how hard it is. You wonder, how is Christianity being understood by our culture? How is it being defined? What misunderstandings are creeping in as it's either aligned or not aligned to a particular party or candidate? Have you noticed how hard it is to engage this time? You go on social media, it's almost like you can't win no matter what you say. If you say, listen, have faith in God. He's on the throne. Someone will say to you, listen, you should weep with those who weep. If you weep with those who weep, someone will say to you, you should have faith in God. He's on the throne. It feels like you can't win. So what should you do? What should we do? On Sunday night when you gather in GCM, on Wednesday night when you gather in GCM, on Friday night when you gather in GCM, you should pray. And how should you pray as people who have fruit in our lives? Big, bold, expectant, confident prayers. Where we have promises from God, we should cling to them. We should say, Jesus, it looks like your church is up against a mountain here. And then we should say to ourselves, but you have promised that the church will advance and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus, it seems like everything is out of control but you have promised that you are working all things together for the good of your people and those who are called according to your purposes. It seems like everything is in disarray, but you've told us that we don't trust in chariots and horses, but in the Lord on his throne. You've given us promises. Listen, where you don't know what God's will is, humbly pray like Jesus did, let your will be done and not mine. But where you have promises from God and namely the scriptures to cling to, Pray big, bold, confident prayers without a doubt that he can be trusted to answer as he has promised that he would. He ends this section with a caution. There's no mountain that can hinder God's people in prayer. If there is a hindrance, he says it's not forgiving. Verse 25, he just says to us, listen, you can't stand up to pray big, bold prayers asking for the whole country to be reconciled if you've got a spirit of unforgiveness in your own heart. If you receive mercy, you'll extend mercy. So if there's one thing that can trip you up, it won't be a mountain of challenge. It will be bitterness in your own soul. And you should take that into even this week. You will be disappointed by people outside and in here who don't line up with how you line up, who don't see things as you see things. How will you pray together as the people of God, praying for reconciliation, praying for unity if there's unforgiveness in your own heart. And so Jesus calls us to forgive as we stand to pray. So a practical application. Don't put on a leafy show today. Don't stand to pray big, bold prayers if there's not forgiveness. He says if you have anything against anyone, let that stop you in your tracks so that you're not a big, leafy show. Don't come to communion today if you have anything against anyone and you're not willing to forgive. Deal with that first so that we won't be a big leafy show. This fig tree has served its purpose in calling lots of people throughout history and us this morning to not be fruitless, but to be full of faith in God. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that we would have ears to hear. You will judge that which is fruitless and faithless. But today is the day where the King on the throne offers pardon and mercy, where he calls us to trust in the one who withered on the tree so that we might be saved, not torn down, but built up as your people. So we pray we would respond to the offer of your mercy and salvation today And that you might give us grace to be fruitful, that it might be expressed in believing prayer, forgiving one another, and being the people of God in our day. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we come to communion, and this meal reminds us of the one who withered for us. His body was broken, his blood was shed, so that we might be saved from the judgment he took upon himself. The judgment we deserved fell on him. So if you know Jesus, come. If you've trusted in him, identified with him in baptism, if you're walking with Jesus, if you're repented of your sins, then come. If you're here and you don't know Jesus as Lord, or if you're not walking with him, if you're not bearing the fruit of being willing to forgive those who you have anything against, then the caution would be to you, don't eat from this table in an unworthy way. Instead, deal with that. If you're not in relationship with Jesus, come into a relationship with Jesus. Trust in him. If you've got sin you need to own and confess and repent of, do that. The, the invitation to you will be to that and not to come to this table in love for your own soul. So I'll give you a moment to receive this invitation. Let's respond in silence and in prayer, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Let's stand together. I'll lead us through a responsive reading. You can read the parts that say all. Beloved, you are invited to this meal not because you are worthy in yourself, but because you are clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. Do not allow the weakness of your faith or your failures in the Christian life to keep you from this table. For it is given to us because of our weakness and because of our failures, in order to increase our faith by feeding us with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So come, believing sinners, for the table is ready. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Most gracious God, we give you thanks for what you have given us, for what you have promised us in the Spirit. It declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. As surely as we eat this bread and drink this cup, so surely was his body broken and blood shed. Amen. Even as we eat and drink to nourish our flesh, by faith we receive the body and blood of Christ to nourish our souls. Jesus, by faith, we come now to your table. Your death, the Lord, will come, take the bread and the cup, bring it back to your seats, and then we'll participate in this meal.